letter seven of the outcast by william winwood reed this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by expatriate in bangor maine letter seven mr watson had a large family as was shown by the number of small caps and coats hanging up in the hall i was ushered into an apartment which like a desert island bore no traces of human habitation everything remained as it had come from the hands of the upholsterer the atmosphere was damp and cold as if no fire had ever been lighted in the polished grate the chairs and sofas looked as if they were in a shop window the gorgeous books on the central table had perhaps never been opened certainly never been read all feudal castles contained a dungeon in which malefactors were cast and in many old-fashioned houses a desert chamber is set apart for the reception of guests i did not like to sit down for fear i should crease something and did not dare to walk about for fear of soiling the carpet as it was i could see a bootmark which the lady of the house would view with no less horror than robinson crusoe the footprint in the sand i therefore remained in a most uncomfortable attitude while the door was constantly opened by small children who peeped in and made faces at me and then shut it with a bang and a shout of exultation at last the rustle of a silk dress announced that the change of toilette was completed and mrs watson came into the room round which she glanced with an air of evident pride she begged me to sit down but i said i was anxious to see mr watson at once so she led the way into his study having made me promise that i would take a dish of tea before i went home soon afterwards i heard not without satisfaction the sound of manual punishment accompanied by shouts which were not of a gleeful character mr watson was seated in his study reading paley's natural theology and smoking a long clay pipe when i had explained the object of my visit he did not seem surprised but asked me a number of questions which showed that he was well acquainted with works of science and philosophy having received my replies he reflected a little and then said laying down his pipe i see you have thought out this matter for yourself and have not taken it at second hand it would be useless for me to try and move you out of your position i shall therefore place myself in that position i shall admit for argument's sake you understand that you have found out the truth we shall therefore discuss what is best for you to do surely i said there can be no doubt about that i ought to act according to the truth you think it is your duty to withdraw from the church most certainly i answered and i have come here to ask your advice as to how to proceed in this difficult matter i do not wish to cause scandal or to give unnecessary pain but remaining in the church is out of the question altogether gently gently he replied allow me to ask what are your circumstances what have you to live upon when you are married i inherit a sum of money from my mother the interest of which is a hundred fifty pounds a year that is my own besides that my father has promised me a liberal allowance and then there is the money i shall make perhaps your father may refuse to give you an allowance when he finds that you have left the church is that quite impossible a little reflection forced me to admit that it was not quite impossible but on the contrary rather probable than otherwise however said i that matters little i am young i will enter another profession i will make my way in the world you are not then aware said mr watson that clergymen are forbidden by law to enter any other profession footnote this law has since been repealed 
End of note. Then, said I, nothing daunted, I will get work from publishers and editors. I shall easily get on. Excuse me, he replied, I have lived some years in London and have written for the press. Hundreds of indigent clergymen, many of whom are fine scholars, seek in vain for employment of that kind. The supply far exceeds the demand. No, look at the future fairly in the face, and don't stir up a vague mist of hopes and illusions. If you leave the church, you cannot marry Margaret. I was stupefied. Strange to say, I had never thought of this. Mr. Watson did not interrupt my meditations, but quietly filled another pipe and began to smoke again. I said, what do you advise? I think, said he, in a kind voice, that I can show you are not bound by the moral law to give up the church. Ah, sir, said I, duty speaks to me clearly enough, though I have not, I feel it, the strength to obey its commands. I cannot part from Margaret, but I know that I ought all moralists are agreed he replied that the welfare of mankind is the test of the right the virtues so called are virtues because they contribute to human happiness if they become injurious they cease to be virtues now life is so constituted that no positive dogma no undeviating rule can be laid down for the guidance of the conduct in a broad sense we may say it is for the welfare of mankind that every one should speak the truth but there are many exceptions to the rule no one would hesitate to tell a lie in order to save the life of an innocent man here as often happens there is a choice between two evils and the lesser evil is selected it is wrong to tell a lie but it is more wrong to participate in murder or if you please we may put it another way here is a choice between two virtues it is good to tell the truth but far better to save an innocent life from destruction while the struggle it costs the good man to lie adds to the nobleness of the deed having thus proved as i think you will allow that there can be a case in which falsehood is a virtue i will take a case which from what i know of the clergy happens i imagine very often a parson with a wife and family of children entirely dependent upon him ceases to believe in the doctrines of the anglican church his first impulse is to obey the voice of his conscience and to leave the church but a little reflection warns him that if he did so his wife and children would starve of two evils he chooses the least he becomes if you will a hypocrite here the pipe fell and broke into splinters on the hearth that he may not violate the sacred duties of the husband and the father and now my dear edward if you will allow me so to call you which in your case is the greater evil and which is the less if you were a man living alone and bound by no ties to another human heart if your leaving the church would only involve loss of money and social position i would say be honest be free live on bread and water work with your hands break stones upon the road rather than be untrue but you are not alone a life is entwined round yours like the ivy round that larch over there on the lawn margaret loves you and consider how much harm you will do to others if you proclaim yourself an infidel consider how much good you may do if you remain in the church you need never preach a doctrinal sermon in the new testament you will find maxims of the purest morality and precepts of the tenderest love let these be your texts what does it matter after all if your parishioners believe in some fabulous legends of the east and some greek definitions of the undefinable 
these are only intellectual errors you are not surely like those theologians who maintain that an incorrect theory of the universe involves eternal perdition you believe in a life of future rewards and punishments and it is in your power as a clergyman to convert men and women from a life of brutality and vice outside the church you could do little but clothed with its authority how much sin you might destroy how much misery you might alleviate let this be your atonement and it will not be refused it will not be refused the good man's eyes were filled with tears and he said as he pressed my hand let us not speak of this again unless it is necessary for you it is a painful subject for me we are easily won over by arguments to that which we secretly wish that same evening i wrote to inform mr watson that i had determined to take his advice and as he desired would not allude to the matter again i read no theological books increased my devotional exercises and spent the greater part of the day with the sick and the poor practising the strictest economy i was able to give away in charity all the money i received from the church thus i quieted my conscience for a time but only for a time it was not with me a question of the moral law and of the duty of man to man i was deeply fervidly religious and when i knelt down by my bedside at night to confess myself to god when i reviewed my conduct of the day i could not believe that it was pleasing in his sight i felt myself a traitor to him a coward who paid outward allegiance to a false god and worshipped the true god in secret as if it were a sin i felt that i was doing wrong my conscience spoke in no uncertain voice i could only sigh and weep and pray god to have mercy on my weakness and forgive me but i knew my own guilt in which i persevered and i knew that i did not deserve to be forgiven and in time there came upon me in these nightly prayers often prolonged till the dawn a conviction that god had turned his face away for when i offered up my supplications no response came back to my heart that wondrous feeling of relief and consolation the reflex action of the soul which rewards those who pray with intensity and faith ceased to exist for me and i rose from my knees unrefreshed yet when i thought of proclaiming the truth of parting forever from my love i cried it is impossible now i began to suffer the most horrible torments as i lay in bed unable to sleep i saw lights dancing in the room and shadows passing to and fro i heard groans and sobs mingled with bursts of smothered laughter one night i beheld my mother and margaret in heaven whilst i was borne past them by demons and a voice cried aloud they believed in the false but they were sincere to you the truth was revealed and you hid it in your heart the sunday i dreaded as a day of doom the tolling of the bell seemed to summon me to the tortures of the rack often when i was reading the lessons i felt an almost incontrollable impulse to throw down the book and proclaim it a lie often as i was preaching voices whispered in my ear all kinds of blasphemous things and sometimes i thought that i had repeated them and stopping short would question the faces of the congregation to see if it were so ah terrible days even now it would give me pain to enter that church i see it before me as if it were only yesterday the whitewashed walls with texts in many-coloured letters the plain open pews and the people ranged in long rows 
the window of crimson glass and the sun-rays lying like blood-streaks on the floor margaret saw that i was ill and begged me to go to the seaside she thought i had overworked myself among the poor and indeed my labours were prodigious but they had been a kind of relief i did not take her advice for i felt that i must make an end mr watson's arguments might be perfectly just but in every great crisis of the mind it is feeling not reason that decides convinced that if i continued my life of falsehood and silence i should forfeit my eternal happiness i resolved to seek security even at the cost of margaret again and again i sought her to tell the sad news but when i came within the charm of her presence i felt as if i could suffer anything even the torments of the damned rather than relinquish her love then again when i returned to my house haunted by demons i cursed my cowardice and swore that next time should be the last but my confession was wrung from me by an accident one evening margaret and i strolled out after dinner to the wilderness we went to the hyacinth dell the flowers were as beautiful as ever it was the same time of year we stood on the spot where then we had met i told her i thought at first she was an angel from my mother in heaven and she said with a blush that she loved me from the first because i looked so pale and sad pity made her take me to her heart we spoke yet more of the past and revived tender memories for a brief space i forgot the troubles that menaced our life we saw margaret's maid tripping down the path which led from the village to the house she held a letter in her hand and said that as she was passing the post-office a gentleman's groom rode up and inquired the way to the rectory when she found that he had a letter for me she took charge of it thinking i would like to see it at once margaret took the letter from her hand oh thank you jane she said it is important indeed and she showed me the episcopal seal jane smiled and curtsied and went on to the house i opened the letter and we read it together the bishop had heard of my labours and was glad to say it was now in his power to give me a wider field he offered me a parish in the country town with a salary of four hundred pounds a year margaret clapped her hands oh she said this is the high road to fortune you will be as great as you are good then she stopped and looked at me in wonder i cannot take it i said i am an infidel she started back in horror clasping her hands she thought that i was mad i have long concealed it from you i said it is all over now dear margaret we must part for ever she turned ashy pale and trembled all over o oh, thou divine ruler i cried eternal spirit of truth for thee i have wounded this heart that i love more than all that is on earth give her strength to bear this affliction she sank on my breast and flung her arms round my neck edward she said as she raised her haggard face towards mine edward i cannot give you up i am still your betrothed i will be your wife for better for worse rich or poor sinner or saint what do i care without you i shall die my child i said the almighty god has sent us here for a few short and unhappy years not to do that which is pleasant but that which is good and to prepare for the life beyond the grave you must not disobey your father and he will never consent to our marriage from this day i cease to be a clergyman you do not love me she cried i do not love you margaret look at these sunken cheeks these hollow eyes 
these emaciated hands love and religion love and honour have daily contended within me see have i not suffered and love has lost love has lost she cried and clung to me with her despairing arms not a tear dimmed her eyes which were filled with arid woe edward she whispered let us be silent let us keep this dangerous secret for a time ah i have a way you are too ill to take a large parish you are forced to travel for your health but before you go we shall be married then we will live abroad for a long long time and then oh god i cried in a loud voice preserve me her head drooped upon her bosom preserve us i said from sin and hypocrisy she drew back and folded her trembling hands pallid from violent emotion command me she said and i obey dear love i said let us suffer on earth that we may be united hereafter to part no more then life passed quickly she said and come death to make us meet again as a perishable day i said life will pass and death will soon come to herald in the dawn i pressed her to my heart the shades of evening descended and the voice of the wilderness were hushed the pale moon arose the hours passed by twice thrice the great bell rang from the house again and again we said farewell again and again we flew back to each other's arms at length we saw torches gleaming through the trees one last kiss and she ran down the path to the house i returned to the spot where first we had met and gathered some flowers and put them in my breast end of letter seven recording by expatriate in bangor maine